Welcome once again, everyone, to the Maritime History Podcast. I'm Brandon Hubner, and this is episode 17, Black Ships on Trojan Shores. Today, we're going to look at one of the most enduring myths of ancient history, the Trojan War, as enshrined in epic form in the Iliad. In myth, this is the war where the face of Helen launched a thousand Achaean ships, destined for Ilios, Troy, where they would besiege the city and have their vengeance. You might wonder why the Trojan War as a focus for our podcast on maritime history. The sack of Troy, the Trojan horse, all that happened on land, right? And yes, it did, but there's an undercurrent of maritime power running like an integral thread throughout the entire myth. Without the Achaean sea power, the entire story would change, and who knows how history would have differed. We'll talk today about the role that sea power played in the period, and how differing cultural views influenced the Mycenaeans, the Trojans, even the Hittites. This probably will be a long episode, because I also think it's important to get an accurate picture of the late Bronze Age world's dying stages so that we can then frame the emergence of the Sea Peoples in its proper light. And there are many players on the stage, as I'm sure you're aware already. We've talked in past episodes a bit about Heinrich Schliemann's discovery of one of these players, the Mycenaean civilization, and more specifically about his unearthing of golden artifacts from shaft graves at Mycenae itself. Beyond that city, I think it's pretty widely known that Schliemann, among other archaeologists, also discovered the site of Troy with its many layers. He had his personal theories about the site back when he discovered it, and historians in the intervening years have proposed many alternative theories. Even today, we are still simply theorizing. Was the site of Troy the actual site of the events in the Iliad? Was the Trojan War even real in a historical sense? And if so, where does the epic drama of Homer's tale depart from historical reality? And the bottom line for any student of history, what contemporary sources are there to even help shed some light on any of these inquiries to begin with? Many questions today, but I trust that in looking at some of these sources, we can see some of the historical reality underlying one of the earliest tales of a war where a naval force played a large role. A brief warning here before the plunge. This whole discussion is very complex. My hope is to present you with a coherent picture of a distinct possibility of what the history looked like. But please keep in mind that there are many theories to explain the history behind Homer's Trojan War, and the proper interpretation of the historical documents that we are going to look at today. This discussion could take up hours if we were to let it. Indeed, stacks of books have been devoted to this entire subject alone. In addition to the complexity, this topic dovetails into our future discussions of the Sea Peoples and the Late Bronze Age Collapse. So I do want to lay a good foundation today that we can reference uh, in the future in the upcoming episodes where we'll look at the Sea Peoples and all of that related information. 
Here's to hoping it all makes sense when we're through. Perhaps it's ill-advised, but for today's episode I'm going to make the assumption that we're all familiar with the basic plot of the Trojan War, as recounted in the Iliad itself. The recent Hollywood adaption of the myth in the film Troy is, to put it bluntly, a travesty to Bronze Age history, as well as to the Homeric tradition of the myth itself. But I'll suppress any pedantic urges for now, and hopefully you all can do the same. If you are looking for a good podcast treatment of the Trojan War myth, look no further than The Myths and History of Greece and Rome, put together by Paul Vincent. He dedicates a handful of episodes to recounting the myth, and I've enjoyed his podcast immensely, so that's a good place to go if you do want a summary of what all's going on in this story. So with the preliminaries behind us, let us now take the plunge into history. We've seen that the Mycenaeans of 1500 through about 1300 BCE were quite active in Mediterranean trade, making much contact with the Levant, Cyprus, and some coastal areas of Anatolia. They were also the originators of the Ord Galley, the long ships that Homer has the Achaeans using to make their way over to Troy, the city. Some have said that the Homeric authorship of the epic, at some point in the 8th century BCE, which the dating there is also a huge debate in and of itself, along with who Homer even was, but some have said that his writing the epic that late in history would have resulted in later Greek traditions and practices of his day seeping into what he claimed was to have taken place at least 400 years before he wrote it down. There's certainly a degree of that transference present, as there will be in almost any writing or history, but with regard to the description of ships in the Iliad, much of what Homer described has been proven to be accurate through archaeological finds dated to the period of the 13th century BCE, the period where historians generally place any historical underpinning of the Trojan War. The black ships that we talked about in episode 15, for example, not to mention the fact that Homer also describes long ships steered by a single pilot on a single steering rudder. That setup is precisely how early period galleys were built, while the galleys of Homer's day actually had dual steering rudders for the most part. These few specifics aside, though, before we can really get into the real history events behind the Trojan War, a civilization that's not yet graced the stage of our podcast needs to make a debut. This civilization is that of the Hittites, a superpower of the Bronze Age world, although a relative late bloomer in the grand scheme of history, as were the Mycenaeans. The discovery of the Hittite civilization and their history is yet another fascinating topic that's way beyond our scope, and I'm actually not sure whether a podcast has yet examined the Hittites in depth. For our purposes today, it's enough to know that they were the occupiers of much of Anatolia, having emerged as a distinct civilization only in the 17th century BCE 
but having also had progenitors in the region for several hundred years previous. The Hittites borrowed their cuneiform writing from the Assyrians, and while they did occupy an expansive territory that bordered the Mediterranean along much of Anatolia's southern coastline, stretching around to the Levant coastal city of Ugarit, reaching right to the walls of Byblos at one point in their history, the Hittites were not seagoing peoples by any means. These were the famed charioteers of the ancient world, a huge portion of their empire landlocked. This doesn't mean that they had no maritime connections, though. The Hittites controlled many coastal cities, and though the cities remained nominally independent and reliant on formal alliances or vassal city agreements with the Hittite king, it is thought that the Hittites would call upon the ships of major coastal cities in times of need. We will see this proven out when we get to look at one of the oldest recorded naval battles, waged by the Hittite king Sapolilyuma II against some invading Cypriots, but the Hittite king used the ships of Ugarit, a Syrian city that the Hittites controlled. Now, being largely landlocked and dependent on the trade of its coastal allies, the Hittites were keen on retaining control of the Levant for as long as they could. This was the cause of the Battle of Kadesh, which took place around 1275 BCE. Ramses II of Egypt attempted to expand Egyptian control northward, but the Hittites were having none of it. That's getting a bit ahead of ourselves, perhaps, but it's good to keep in mind at least. As I've said, the Hittites controlled much of Anatolia, varying portions of the Levant, and their eastern reaches abutted the empires of Assyria and the Mitanni. The real focal point for us today, though, is the westernmost stretches of Anatolia, the coastlines and the islands that dot the edge of the Aegean Sea, but are only a moderate distance from Greece proper. Knowing what we know at this point, that the Mycenaeans were quite active on the seas, and that the western coast of Anatolia was just barely within the reach of Hittite influence, it shouldn't surprise us to find out that many areas along the western coasts of Anatolia were destinations for Mycenaean goods, to a moderate extent. It's at this point that the physical letters and records found at Hittite archaeological sites come into the story. And it's as good a point as any to emphasize just how amazing the discovery of these Hittite records have been to our understanding of the Bronze Age world. Much like the Mycenaeans, Minoans, and others, the Hittites weren't really known until the archaeology boom of the 19th century. Since that time, many thousands of Hittite cuneiform tablets have been discovered throughout Anatolia none more important than a cache of 2,500 tablets found at the ancient equivalent of the Hittite Foreign Office. These tablets, among others, will form the basis of our talk about the Trojan War, and they're a fascinating glimpse at diplomacy and the inner workings of the great ancient empires, while also being 3,000-year-old windows into the same human nature that sits at the helms of nations today. 
As we look at these documents and get into the intricacies of war and politics, a basic framework is instructive. That framework, for me at least, is this. The Mycenaeans were an eastward-looking people. Their palaces were scattered among the islands of the Aegean, and their trade routes stretched to the easternmost reaches of the Mediterranean. While the Mycenaean Empire may not have been a centralized one, the fortunes of the various cities all depended on trade with their eastern neighbors, even with Egypt in the southeast, so the Mycenaean galleys patrolled the seas while Levantine merchants moved the goods. Uh, think of the Uluburun and Galadonia wrecks that we talked about last time. In stark contrast stood the Hittites, and by association, as we'll see, the Trojans. Troy was, quite paradoxically, a seaport that had no naval force to speak of. Their military protection from the east came from the Hittite Empire, and their wealth came thanks to their strategic location and welcoming of merchants from the Aegean and from the eastern Mediterranean. Homer paints the Trojan royalty as a horse-loving people, horses figuring heavily in his descriptions of Trojan culture. Ships and seafaring, however, are not in the Trojan wheelhouse, nor that of the Hittites. So, in a sense, the Mycenaeans have an automatic advantage, the advantage that comes from maneuverability and the versatility of movement and transport by sea. These are the cultural identities of the various players at the time of the Trojan War, as described by Homer. But the real question is, do historical records reflect this? I think they do, and to see just how revealing the records are, we'll start 200 years before the time of the Trojan War, but in the same region of the world, the western coast of Anatolia. As I mentioned a moment ago, archaeology has shown that the western coastal cities along the Anatolian coast were subject to a moderate Mycenaean presence. Not necessarily an occupation, mind you, but presence of large amounts of pottery and other artifacts indicative of small Mycenaean enclaves. If we compare the large quantities of Mycenaean goods that have been found in the Levant and in Egypt, the Mycenaean trade in Anatolia pales in comparison a discrepancy that we can probably explain, as we'll see in a moment. We'll probably never get enough evidence to paint a full picture, but we know that at least one specific city in western Anatolia could boast a large percentage of Mycenaean inhabitants, and it may have even had political connections to the Mycenaean cities of Greece itself, the city in Anatolia being Miletus. It had been settled by Cretans in the 15th century BCE and was then taken over when the Mycenaeans grew in power. The presence of the distinctive Mycenaean tombs at Miletus can show us the extent of their occupation. Don't let the nominal Mycenaean activity in this region, and mostly in one specific city, give you the wrong idea. Perhaps this next fact will put it all in perspective for us. We've seen how trade was a thoroughly international affair, 
even way back here in the Bronze Age. Egyptian artifacts have been found all over the world, as have Babylonian and Minoan Mycenaean artifacts. Even the Hittites, who we introduced earlier, had their trade goods spread to all of their neighbors in the vicinity. It is a very strange reality, then, to see that only 12 Hittite objects have ever been found in all of the various Mycenaean sites around the Aegean. Twelve. Likewise, only a handful of Minoan and Mycenaean goods ever made their way into central Anatolia, the heartland of the Hittite Empire, despite the fact that numerous Egyptian, Babylonian, Cypriot, and even Assyrian goods had been found in central Anatolia. For some unbeknownst reason, there seems to have been a trade barrier between the Hittites and the Mycenaeans, a blockage that we don't see between any of the other Bronze Age Near East powers. Intriguing, you say? Well, I agree, and there's certainly more. Klein theorizes that this strangely unique lack of Mycenaean-Hittite trade is possibly indicative of the world's first trade embargo. We'll look at the proffered evidence in a moment, but it's first useful to note that the Hittites and the Mycenaeans had a history of relationship issues beginning 200 years before the date of the Trojan War. As mentioned, archaeological estimates are that the Trojan War occurred sometime around 1250 BCE, give or take a little bit, and Herodotus shares this same opinion as to the time frame. If we go all the way back to 1430 BCE, the Mycenaeans and the Hittites were already going at it. An inscription discovered in the Hittite capital city of Hattusha reveals that in 1430, the Hittite king Tudhaliash was forced to put down not one, but two rebellions in a region that the Hittites called Ashua. Skipping over the long debates about toponymy, uh, scholars generally agree that this place that the Hittites called Ashua was none other than the region around Troy, perhaps including other coastal areas along northwest Anatolia. Two names in particular, Wilusia and Taurisha, are thought to refer to the city of Troy and its surrounding lands. The Hittite presence in Ashua isn't really that remarkable. It's understandable to think that they would have been there since their empire stretched out that far. What is remarkable, though, is that the inscription describing the Ashua rebellions was found on a sword of Mycenaean origin. This adds another element to the story altogether. Alone, it wouldn't tell us a lot, but other fragmentary documents from the same period refer to the rebellions and to a place that the Hittites called Ahiawa. One letter specifically mentions the land of Ahiawa, the king of Ahiawa, and islands in the control of the king of Ahiawa all within the same context of the Ashua Rebellion. The name Ahiawa is, again, a name that's been subject to much debate, but there is more broad agreement based on Egyptian and other similar records that this term can refer to no one other than the Mycenaeans and to their islands in the Aegean, 
west of the Hittite Empire. Tying all of this together, then, Klein theorizes that this evidence of Mycenaean weaponry and association with armed rebellion in western Anatolia aligns perfectly with the literary traditions of battles and raids by the Greek heroes in the lands of Anatolia. The Iliad talks several times about pre-Trojan war battles and to weapon types that were no longer used in 1250 BCE. For instance, the Greek hero Heracles was supposed to have sacked the city of Troy once before the Trojan War itself, using only six ships and a small handful of other heroes to make the journey over to western Anatolia. Knowing what we know about the Mycenaeans, then, what possible reason could have driven their military involvement in western Anatolia? I think the basic answer is that the Mycenaean culture was a militaristic one, especially in comparison to their Minoan predecessors. Linear B tablets found at Pylos, uh, the home of Nestor, and the site of a significant Mycenaean city-state, reveal that the Mycenaeans made a common practice of taking slaves from cities along the Anatolian coast. Hundreds of women are described doing menial tasks back in Pylos, and they are distinguished from one another based on their place of origin. Places like Lemnos, Halicarnassus, Chios, Ashua, all of these locations in western Anatolia. There is even one woman described as having come from Torocha, a possible reference to the city of Troy itself. All of the women described are described as captives, the same way in which Homer referred to the women seized by Achilles during one of his treks south of Troy during the Long Trojan War. I think it's interesting then to compare this evidence of Mycenaeans capturing Trojan and Anatolian women as slaves to the capture of Helen by the Trojans, which was supposedly the spark for the Trojan War. Anyway, it seems that to a large extent the 1300s BCE in the eastern Aegean were comparable to the period of Viking raids along the eastern coasts of Britain. A people with an immensely superior navy utilized that advantage to raid coastal cities, cities that would have been rich in resources, gold, silver, weapons, and most importantly for the Mycenaean economy, slave labor. Stemming from this view, Homer's fixation on describing several great Achaean heroes as being sackers of cities gives us an insight into the predominance that coastal raiding played in the Mycenaean mindset. The nature of Mycenaean political structure is outside of our scope as usual, but it has been theorized that the loose nature of the association between city-states in Mycenae would have contributed to this predilection for raids on western Anatolia. The more loot and slaves a Mycenaean king could bring back to his city, the more allegiance and muscle he could attract from the surrounding region, leading to pretty much a snowball effect of growing military might, requiring more loot and slaves to prop it up, and so on down the line. 
Along with that, we must keep in mind that the Mycenaean world was not centralized, as we would think of a centralized civilization like Rome, for example. It's quite plausible that one Mycenaean city would have made a raid against an Anatolian coastal city, while another Mycenaean city would have traded with that same city instead. This can explain the presence of Mycenaean pottery all along the Anatolian coast. But as we now move closer in time to the Trojan War, more evidence from the Hittite Foreign Office archives begins to show more detail about the political climate. In the early stages of the 13th century BCE, Hittite records begin to include mentions of a troublemaker in the neighboring regions called Milawanda and Arsawa. Milawanda was a region in southwestern Anatolia, right around the city of Miletus, the one we talked about earlier, where the Mycenaean Greeks had a disproportionately large presence. Hittite records even recognized that this region was part of the Mycenaean Empire. But this recognition didn't dissuade the Hittites from intervening there when they felt that it was necessary. The Hittites had destroyed the city in 1315, but Mycenaean influence had evidently remained to some extent. In fact, at the same time the Mycenaeans were raiding coastal areas, they were also engaged in diplomacy, particularly with the royal family of a region that was known as Arzawa. This region encompassed the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna, cities directly to the north of Miletus, so direct neighbors of the Mycenaean presence there in Miletus, and therefore an understandable region for the Mycenaeans to want to keep on good terms. Until the 13th century BCE, Arzawa had been both a vassal state of the Hittite king and on good terms with the Greeks in Miletus. But the Hittite leaders of this period bear little love for a rebel named Pia Meridush. He may have been a member of the royal family of Arzawa, tired of his reliance on Hittite power, perhaps. But we know for sure that in the decades before the Trojan War, he was engaged in a series of rebellions in Milawanda and Arzawa. What's more, he was rebelling against Hittite control with the help of the Mycenaeans, possibly even at their behest. We get a first-hand, behind-the-scenes glimpse at this whole diplomatic situation in a letter that's known as the Tawagalawash letter, written by the king of the Hittites, Hattushalish III, right around 1250 BCE, and sent to an unnamed king of Ahiawa, a Mycenaean king. Right off the bat, it's revealing to see that the Hittites and the Mycenaeans had direct diplomatic contact, but it gets even better. At the time of the letter's writing, Pia Meridush had continued his rebellious streak, raiding Hittite territory in western Anatolia. We learn from the letter that Pia Meridush had been given asylum by the Mycenaeans. There's a reference to Pia Meridush boarding a ship and traveling to an island somewhere in the Aegean. We also learn that the brother of the Mycenaean king, to whom the letter was addressed, had been active in the rebellion. 
This brother's name was Tawagalawash, and he had been actively recruiting manpower to help keep the rebellion alive. In the past, it seems that relations between the Hittites and the Mycenaeans had been on pretty good footing. Tawagalawash apparently had ridden in a chariot with the personal charioteer of the Hittite king. But it appears that this rebellion in the West had changed matters. Now, before we get into the heart of the Tawagalawash letter, especially for its relation to the Trojan War, it's also important to see that the name Tawagalawash is the Hittite rendition. But in the Greek translation, many now believe that the name was none other than Eteocles. In Greek myth, Eteocles was the son of Oedipus, and Eteocles ruled with his brother, a curious parallel between myth and the Hittite record, to be sure. Now, the Tawagalawash letter is revealing not just for its discussion of Mycenaean activity in Anatolia, but also for what it tells us about the Mycenaean status in the Bronze Age world. In the letter, Hattushalish calls the Mycenaean king my brother on multiple occasions, and this was a common practice when royals addressed one another. Uh, we can see this echoed in the Hittite correspondence with Egypt, and Egyptian letters to other places around the Bronze Age world. Furthermore, Hattushalish calls the Mycenaean king a great king, indicative of the status of the Mycenaeans in the eyes of the Hittites. One scholar has suggested that Hattushalish is being diplomatic when he calls the Mycenaean king great, stroking the Mycenaean ego, doing his best not to provoke an international incident. After all, the letter tells us that Hattushalish has personally entered the city of Miletus, and though he has demanded the extradition of Pierre Maradouche into Hittite hands, he also apologizes if that demand sounds soldierly or blunt, and to make up for that possible bad sound, he sends a royal kinsman from the Hittite royal house as collateral, a guarantee that Pierre Maradouche will be treated well should the Mycenaeans decide to give him up. All in all, then, this letter tells us that the Hittites viewed the Mycenaeans as a powerful kingdom in the West, able even to seduce Hittite vassal states like Arzawa into an open rebellion against the Hittite Empire. So, the Tawagalawash letter tells us assuredly that the Hittites and the Mycenaeans had high-level diplomatic contact that they viewed one another as great powers in the world, and that the Mycenaeans were unafraid to get militarily involved in affairs in western Anatolia, even if that meant provoking a Hittite reaction. These are certainly important points, but one final passage from the letter is key for us when it comes to the issue of the Trojan War. In the letter, the Hittite king Hattushalish asks the Mycenaean king to have a personal chat with Pia Meridush and to, quote, tell him that the king of Hatti and I, that in the matter of Welusha, over which we were at enmity, he has persuaded me, changed my mind, and we have made friends. A war is wrong for us. 
Later on, Hattushalish again references the matter in question concerning the town of Walusha over which we made war and over which we now have come to a settlement. What this means is only what it appears, that the Hittites and Mycenaeans had come to blows over a town named Walusha. The remarkability here is the location of this town. Let's just say that one Greek name for Troy was Ilios, but they originally pronounced Ilios with a W, saying it Wilios, not far at all from the Hittite name Wilusha. Scholars now by and large feel that Wilusha in the Hittite records is a reference to the region north and west of Arzawa, possibly extending even to the city of Troy. War fought over the region around Troy then. Quite interesting, and there's still more to come. This town or region of Wilusha, which we can equate with the region of Troy, is discussed in still further separate Hittite documents. An amazing one is actually a treaty between a king of Wilusha and the Hittite king Muwatalawish II. This treaty was set down in writing right around 1275 BCE, only 20 to 25 years before the best estimates of when a Trojan War would have taken place. So it's automatically interesting here to see that the Trojans had made a formal alliance with the Hittites that close in time. The Hittite king Muwatalawish is the same king that fought Ramses at the Battle of Kadesh that was mentioned earlier. And in this treaty, the Trojan king pledges military support for any campaigns that the Hittite king should enter. Concerning the Battle of Kadesh, there are detailed Egyptian accounts, and one of the Hittite allies listed in those accounts were a people that the Egyptians called the Durdani, spelled D-R-D-N-Y. Jumping back over to Greek accounts, Homer called the people of Troy both Dardanoi and Trojan, two branches of the city's royal house. So, do we have Egyptian records of the Dardanoi fighting in Syria, fulfilling the pledge of their treaty with the Hittite king? It's a distinct possibility, even if it's not concrete. Perhaps even more amazing is that this treaty between the king of Wilusha and the Hittite king names the Wilusian king, a man called Alexandus. This name falls outside the conventional Hittite language, so it's thought that it is a Hittite transliteration of the Greek name Alexandros. According to the Greek tradition, another name for the Trojan prince who stole away Helen, who we commonly call Paris now, was Alexandros of Ilios. Could the Alexandus of Wilusha in the Hittite treaty and Paris from the Iliad be one and the same? Again, it's fascinatingly possible, but ultimately inconclusive. Another correlation that's definitely worth noting, but ultimately doesn't prove anything beyond doubt, is that one of the gods that was named as a guarantor of Alexandus's side of the treaty 
was a god named Apollyunas, a name equated with the name Apollo, a Greek god of many roles in the pantheon. The remarkable correlation here is that in the Homeric tradition, Apollo takes the side of the Trojans, guiding Paris's arrow, which he fired from the safety of the Trojan walls, to find the vulnerable heel of the Achaean hero Achilles. Now, at this point, we've looked into the main Hittite records that seem to be connected to any potential event that may have formed a historical basis for the Trojan War myth. We haven't really yet looked at the archaeology of Hisharlik, the likely location of the city of Troy, and I don't think that we really need to go into too much depth here. Essentially, long-term archaeology at the site has revealed a city of many layers, each layer a period of history in the city's growth and evolution. Troy 7a has shown a measure of evidence that it was destroyed in war, evidence of fire, some human remains in the streets, arrowheads as well. Estimates are that it was destroyed too late to fit within a Trojan War time frame, possibly as late as 1180 BCE, making this destruction one that's possibly attributable to the Sea Peoples. The preceding layer, Troy 6, has been dated nearer to 1250 BCE, perhaps even closer to 1300. It also shows signs of destruction, but scholars still debate whether the destruction was due to earthquake or to invasion, as few signs of armed conflict are present. The site of the city itself, then, doesn't help much other than to confirm that within the hundred-year span around the estimated time of the Trojan War, the city of Troy was destroyed on more than one occasion. Perhaps future archaeology will reveal more concrete connections to Mycenaean invaders, but for now we can only wait and continue to hypothesize. We've not really talked yet about what Homer has to say to us about any ships that the Achaean invaders would have used. So let's take a brief look at that, and then we'll circle back to summarize the complex evidence that we've seen today. Much has been written about the passage in Book 2 of the Iliad that's referred to as the Catalogue of Ships. Here, Homer lists in detail the cities that sent their sons to fight for Agamemnon against Troy, 164 places named in total. It's thought that this list of warriors and places was compiled independently of the writing of the Iliad, and that its roots lie in a Greek memory that predates the Homeric writings, but was likely written after the fall of the Mycenaeans. This entire vein of study related to the catalog of ships could be a miles-long rabbit trail, so I'll summarize. It seems that the catalog of ships must be pretty accurate as a reflection of the Mycenaean world around the time it ended say 1200 to 1100 BCE. Because several places are named in the list, places that have been discovered and which were inhabited during Mycenaean times, but then are shown to have been abandoned until sometime in the 700s BCE. Beyond that, 
Every city in the catalog that has been discovered today and has been excavated has shown evidence of occupation during Mycenaean times. Some of them down through history, and others of them showing that gap after the Mycenaean decline. What this tells us is that the catalog of ships, or at least a substantial portion of it, has roots in a Mycenaean view of their world, and is not just a list that was compiled several hundred years after the fact. Still, it is impossible to prove any connection between the list and between a historical Trojan War, but it's nevertheless useful for getting a view of the Aegean as it probably existed around the time of a mythical Trojan War. As for the physical ships in which the Mycenaeans would have sailed to Troy, they would have been mainly the Pentaconter-style ship that we talked about in episode 15, as well as a similar but smaller version that sat 20 rowers instead of 50. We saw how Homer described the ships as black ships, a reference to the black appearance of the pitch that kept the hulls waterproofed. He describes the ships as red-proud and blue-proud, bursts of colors that we saw in the contemporary Gurab ship model that was found in Egypt, but probably depicts a Mediterranean-style galley. Homer frequently describes them as well-planked, well-wrought, or similar phrases, so they must have been sturdy ships, pleasing to the eye, especially when amassed in a great invading fleet. Homer also calls them hollow ships, so they wouldn't have had a fully covering deck, like decks that we generally think of on ships today. There were probably small decks fore and aft, for lookouts for, and for a helmsman and navigator aft, but otherwise it seems that the bulk of the ships were uncovered, benches lining the length occupied by the fighting force, who doubled as rowers when such speed was necessary. Since the rowers were also the fighting force, it would make sense for the Mycenaeans to have used their sails whenever possible, so as not to use up the strength of their fighters. Homer talks of single masts and a single white sail, how the men would set up the mast when the wind was advantageous, but how upon entering harbor, they furled the sail and stowed it within the black ship and lowered the mast by the forestays till quickly they brought it to rest in the crutch. The Achaean ships were built for speed, sleek and narrow, able to make headway no matter the weather or conditions. Homer also mentions frequently how, when possible, the Achaeans ran their ships up on shore every night, sleeping in their shadow and using them as storage during land campaigns. When needed, the ships could be readied to sail just as quickly, allowing the Achaeans to slip away at speed. These, we can confidently say, were the ships of raiders, able to maneuver in shallow water thanks to their light, low profiles. This idea of the Mycenaeans as a raiding people now brings us back around to a summary and to one final question that may or may not have an answer to your satisfaction. Why did the Mycenaeans, Homer's Achaeans, invade Troy to begin with? 
The Homeric mythical motivation of Helen's capture aside, why would the real-life Mycenaeans of 1250 BCE have chosen military involvement in Anatolia, as we've seen that they most certainly did, whether we pin that on a actual Trojan War or just on the evidence from Hittite records? This question turns on the state of the Bronze Age world in the middle of the 13th century BCE. One theory that has gained a moderate backing is that Troy had grown to be a rich city because of its location in the southern portion of the Dardanelles, a choke point for any sea access between the Aegean and the Black Sea, or vice versa. If Troy's location allowed it to serve as a stopping port for long-distance trade, then it would naturally follow that any historical basis for the Trojan War may have also turned on access to the Black Sea trade route. Following the chain of logic in this theory, we must then ask whether there is any archaeological evidence for the existence of a trade route between the Aegean peoples and anyone within reach of the Black Sea shores. One would think that if we're arguing for some historical event behind the Trojan War mythos, that we could likewise argue for a Bronze Age Black Sea trade route, based on the myth of Jason and the Argonauts, and their voyage to Colchis, a region on the far eastern shores of the Black Sea. What's more, Greek traditions placed the Argonauts' voyage as having happened before the events of the Trojan War, so there's at least the backing of mythology for this theory. The catch is that there's very little archaeological evidence of Mycenaean presence in, or trade with, the peoples of the Black Sea region. Some moderate evidence has been found, to be sure. Stone anchors and oxide ingots have been found along Cape Kaliakra, the southwestern region of the Black Sea closest to the Bosporus. A handful of double axes and a corresponding mold for making the axes have also been found near the Bosporus, and these axes are traceable directly to Troy, as similar weapons were known to have been produced there. Even in the eastern reaches of the Black Sea, in the Caucasus region, swords of a distinctly Aegean style have been found, the only nine of them in number. Beyond some scant traces of Mycenaean pottery, not much else has been found to date. Some scholars dismiss all of this evidence, while others explain it by pointing to the fact that overland trade routes were heavily used by the Hittite Empire in Anatolia, a possible way to account for the artifacts to the east. Ultimately, we really can't get a clear answer to this theory right now. It seems to be a stretch, considering the relative lack of Mycenaean goods in the Black Sea. It doesn't help either that no artifacts from Black Sea peoples, who were still mainly smaller tribes in the Late Bronze Age, no artifacts from them has been found at Troy. If the city were an entrepot, as such, there should certainly be more evidence of trade from the Black Sea back the other direction. Perhaps future discoveries will help or hurt this theory. But for now, I think a more likely explanation is as follows. 
Let's return again to look at the state of the world in the middle of the 13th century BCE. As we've seen, Troy had been destroyed more than once. The Hittites and Egyptians vied for control of the Levant. And if you remember way back to our episodes on New Kingdom Egypt, we've seen that the patterns of trade and supply on the sea had begun to be disrupted on a more frequent basis. In short, the late Bronze Age powers were in flux, the Mycenaeans no exception. Considering their relative supremacy on the Mediterranean, it makes complete sense that the Mycenaeans would resort to coastal raiding on the cities of their neighbors to the east when times got tough. Looking at the Iliad alone, we can see that the Bronze Age Greeks had a reputation as being a bellicose people. This reputation is further borne out in other sources, and in the proliferation of war instruments and armor in the tombs of the great Mycenaean kings. We saw earlier how the Mycenaeans relied on slave labor to a large degree, and that the capture of slaves in Anatolia is provable through Linear B texts found at Mycenaean cities. This same period, 1300 to 1200 BCE or so, saw the addition of Cyclopean architecture, great walls and such like that, to the previously open palace structures of the Mycenaeans. The motivation behind such additions is not known, but whether it was a defensive measure due to rising trouble from other sea raiders, or whether it was an attempt by a dying power to show that a measure of life still remained, the Cyclopean architecture of the period is more evidence of a world in flux. All of these factors combined reveal a plausible, historically traceable basis behind the myth of a Trojan War. Was there really one single event? Likely not. The Hittite records reveal Mycenaean involvement in Anatolia for at least 150 years prior to 1250 BCE. But there is certainly evidence in these same texts that the Hittites had possibly pushed the Mycenaeans out of Miletus, the main Mycenaean hold on the Anatolian coast. Furthermore, the ruler of Troy had formalized an alliance with the Hittites, and the Greeks had apparently clashed with the Hittites over some issues in the region around Troy. There was no single Trojan War. But don't forget, even in the Iliad itself, Homer talks about the various forays that Achaean heroes made against other cities along the Anatolian coasts, sacking them to supply their forces during the extended campaign. Prestige lay in being considered a sacker of cities. Perhaps there was an actual Agamemnon who managed to unite the Mycenaean cities in a time of rising trouble. Mycenae is, to this day, and likely was in that day, seen as the main center of a culture shared by Aegean cities of the time. All of this is somewhat hard to nail down, for sure, and I apologize if I've only served to confuse you by all of this talk today. I'll end with one last intriguing possibility. 
how could we talk about the Trojan War without referring to the iconic Trojan horse, the enigmatic symbol of the war in the modern retelling? I'll leave the connection here to the words of Michael Wood, taken from his BBC series and companion book, In Search of the Trojan War. He writes, The tale of the horse has been connected with the god Poseidon, who we know existed in the Mycenaean pantheon. In Arcadia, Poseidon was always worshipped in the shape of a horse, in other parts as a horseman or master of horses. For country folk, he was Hippos, the horse. But Poseidon, even in historical times, was also regarded as the only originator of earthquakes. Here, let us remember the alleged destruction of Troy VI by earthquake, and how in the tale, Laomedon cheated Poseidon and was punished by demolition of his beautiful walls. Did a later bard invent the thrilling device of the wooden horse with the Poseidon connection in the back of his mind, transferring the older traditions to an earlier sacking by Heracles? Even if this is implausible, and the Greeks did indeed sack Troy only after it had been shattered by an earthquake, can we still perhaps retain the connection of a cult idol of Poseidon, the god of earthquakes, in the shape of a wooden horse, left by the Greeks as a thank offering? On the whole, it is best to admit that there is something unfathomably mysterious about the wooden horse story. It was evidently in existence long before Homer's day, but more than that, we cannot say. Well, that does it for the material today, leaving us on a somewhat open-ended note, but I hope that it's been enjoyable, and I trust that you didn't mind the length of today's episode. There was just so much interesting material to pack in there. Feel free to hop on Facebook or Twitter if you have any questions about the discussion. I love conversing with everyone and trying to fill in any gaps that I may have left. In the next few episodes, we'll wrap up the events of the Bronze Age world and try to figure out a bit more about the enigmatic Sea Peoples and why everything sort of fell apart once they showed up. Or did they show up because everything was falling apart first? We'll see what we can do to answer that age-old question here in the next few episodes. Also, before I wrap up this longest of our episodes to date, I wanted to tell you about a relatively new podcast that I just love. Sebastian Major is the voice behind Our Fake History, a podcast about myths that we think are history and history that might be hidden in myths. I guess that's a little bit of what we did on our episode here today, but Our Fake History does it every episode. And so far, he's tackled some fascinating topics. Sebastian has a great voice for podcasting, too, so it's easy to listen to. His approach is super engaging, and I've learned a ton about the topics that he's covered so far. Topics like whether Nero really fiddled while Rome burned around him, whether the stereotypical ninja depiction in modern culture has any historical basis, the perennial question of who wrote the Shakespearean oeuvre, a look at many stories from the career of Napoleon Bonaparte, 
Marco Polo's legends about the hashish-smoking assassins in Asia. And then there's a great companion to our discussion of the Minoans, a look at the basis for the myths of Theseus and the Minotaur, at the palace of King Minos on Crete. I've already got this podcast in my weekly rotation after only nine episodes, and I'd encourage you to add it to yours. Sebastian has got a high-quality history podcast that's definitely worth your time, so check out Our Fake History on iTunes and at ourfakehistory.com. Lastly today, thanks to our two most recent iTunes reviews, coming from C. Sipling and Rafe Goldberg. Another round of thanks to Stefan for the PayPal donation, which will be put right back into the podcast to cover costs and production, as usual. Also, a huge thank you and welcome to our two newest Patreon supporters, Mark and Steph. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, by the way. It's humbling to me to see the support continue to grow, and as a way to say thank you, I'm nearing the finish of our first crew members-only episode. If we can get enough people on board with member episodes, I'll go ahead and get an area of the site set up for login and bonus content for the members, hopefully even a members-only podcast feed, if I can figure out how to make that all work. So basically, if you've thought about supporting the podcast, this is a good reason to take the plunge. And for those of you already supporting, be sure to check the Patreon page in the near future for some more info about that episode once I have it ready to get out to you. Alright, I'm signing off for real now today. Thanks for sticking around and for supporting the podcast. I'll talk to you all soon, and until next time, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.